Welcome to our journey. Our journey toward a more perfect union. Our more perfect union is an experiment, a grand experiment in something we all cherish, democracy. Welcome to our Radio Roundtable with higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, as we the people celebrate the journey of America toward a more perfect union. Welcome to a more perfect union. I'm Nick Remesong. Joining me this week are Radio Roundtable regulars with Dr. Natalia Linos, uh, Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, and from Beacon Hill, our representative, Jeff Roy. We also have some guests with us today, and I will let them introduce themselves. If uh, uh, Jeff, do you want to introduce your guest? Absolutely. Uh, thank you so much, Nick, and uh, so thrilled to be joined by my colleague in the great and general court, uh, Senator Becca Rausch. Senator Rausch is uh, finishing up her second term in the legislature and has been a great partner uh, with me on a host of issues, and in particular, uh, the issue that we're going to be taking up today. And she is the, uh, how, uh, the Senate chair of the Joint Committee on uh, Environment. I know it's ENRA. Becca, you're gonna have to help me with uh, filling out that, uh, that uh, acronym, but I know it's all of the environmental uh, stuff and she's been a champion of so many issues uh, in her short time uh, in the legislature and it's just a delight to work with her and a true delight to have her on the show today. So hello, Becca. Hello, Jeff. Thank you so much for having me. And to Natalia and Nick and, and everyone here, it's a joy to be back with you. NRA stands for the Environment, Natural Resources, and Agriculture. And uh, between the com that committee, the NRA committee, and the TUE, Telecommunications, Utilities, and Energy Committee that my good friend Jeff Roy chairs over in the House side, we pretty much cover everything that has to do with climate and our planet, um, which of course has a lot to do with our health, right, our, our human health, and um, and also related to what we're going to be discussing today. So uh, very much looking forward to our conversation and, and getting into the details of, of where health and choice and, and our bodies currently stand. Thanks so much for joining us, Becca. And we have one more special guest, Nick. I've invited Dr. Brittany Butler, who's a social epidemiologist also at Harvard, whose primary research seeks to document and combat anti-Black racism and how that leads to racial disparities in maternal morbidity and mortality for black women especially. So I'm really excited to have Dr. Butler join us. We go by first names, Brittany. Welcome to our panel this morning. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here and join the conversation and just bring a different perspective um, in terms of like how this might be impacting various communities. Thanks so much for inviting me, Natalia. Thank you for coming today, Brittany. And Senator Rausch, thank, thank you for joining much. us today. Um, I do want to keep the introduction short as I feel our discussion today will contain a great deal of information and insight, and I want all involved to have as much time as they need to add to our discussion and to respond. Uh, but in brief, a supposed leak on May 2nd 
of this year of a draft of the Supreme Court decision on Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization created a seismic shockwave that galvanized the forces on both sides of the issue of abortion in the United States. And for the first time in the court's history, a 50-year standing personal right has been taken away. Now, with uh, the final decision being released on June 24th, a six to three decision falling firmly along party lines, lines supposedly non-existent in the Supreme Court, we now have a repudiation of Roe v. Wade and a further deepening of the already crippling social, political, and racial divides that exist in this country. Now, I will start by asking if anyone sees this decision as a tipping point, uh, one that added to the turmoil and unrest that we're already experiencing and may lead to sweeping changes in the limiting of personal liberties in our country. Uh, well, I will start by just saying briefly that, yeah, a tipping point is almost an understatement. Yeah. Uh, we, have a, we have a lot to unpack here, uh, along with the immediate impact on women's rights, health, well-being. The Supreme Court itself is now under suspicion of, of being every bit as political as everything else, uh, and the nature of the justices and what those remedies ought to be, and the impact on the potential impact on other laws, other findings, is something that I think we should also unpack. But I think the most immediate thing on the table is what were they thinking, plain and simple? The majority of Americans support abortion rights, pro-choice, clearly, uh, and have done so for a long time. I'm dazzled by not just the outcome, but the reasoning or, or lack thereof behind the outcome. And with that, I just open the floor. Well, I want to just jump in and say I wasn't as dazzled by the opinion as I was dazzled by how we all knew that this was going to happen and that this has been building over the course of the last 40 years. And it's been a predictable path that this was going to happen. And I'm not shocked. I'm extremely disappointed. Um, but this is not the first time that the Supreme Court has made a terrible decision. Uh, the Supreme Court has a history of making simply awful decisions uh, in the course of its history. I mean, the cases involving slavery in 1860s, the uh, Plessy versus Ferguson in the 1890s, and uh, now this, uh, this decision will stand uh, as one of the worst uh, decisions in the history of this court. And as Nick so appropriately pointed out, it's the first time in the history of the court where they've actually taken away a right that was ingrained in our society over the last 50 years. And not only taking away a right, uh, um, it's an affront to autonomy for women. Uh, and it's a sets us up on a course for the elimination even, of even more rights. And if you read the concurrence by Justice Thomas, mm. he's talking about eliminating uh, all of the substantive uh, due process protections that we uh, have enjoyed since the 1960s and um, calling into question whether there still exists a right to privacy, calling into question whether uh, contraceptive use 
is uh, is legal under the Constitution. Calling into the uh, question uh, same-sex marriage. It's a whole host of things that have been thrown uh, into the fire. But I tell you, um, this has been an orchestrated effort over the course of the last 40 years. And really, uh, I hope it's a tipping point and I hope it's a wake-up call. I'm not seeing it because I've seen some elections that have taken place over the last few days, which uh, seem to continue us along this path. And I know we have midterm elections coming up in November, and uh, I'm very concerned about what those are going to do. And then uh, we have a presidential election coming up in 2024, and I'm deeply concerned about the consequences. So we've got a a whole host, and uh, I'm going to stop there because I think I've launched enough uh, at this point. And uh, our guests, I think, have a lot to say on this topic. I'll just jump in. There's so much to say on this. And I think that there, we could spend hours talking about this and still have more to talk about. I, let's, let's do that. Let's do I was not even remotely <laughs> surprised. And in fact, uh, you know, I'm, I am a published scholar and, and educator specifically and a pre- previous educator before I was elected to the Senate specifically in the aspects of reproductive justice and the law. And if anybody who has any knowledge about any of these issues, who has been even remotely paying attention, knew this was coming and has known this was coming for a long time and certainly knew that this was coming from the moment that Donald Trump was elected president of this country. So I was not at all surprised um, by the decision. But when when the, the leaked draft came out, you know, I said at that point, Every single civil, basic civil right that has been interpreted into the Constitution over the last 50 years is going to be at very grave risk if this decision becomes final. And sure enough, that decision has now become final. And, you know, sometimes it's really lousy to be right. But every single thing that we have relied upon, that we have held near and dear for my entire lifetime, for the lifetimes of several of us on this conversation, and for the lifetimes of many people who are listening, all of those basic civil rights are on the verge of being eviscerated. And one of them is already gone, not gone in Massachusetts. And Jeff and I and our colleagues are doing a lot of work to even shore up what we have, what we have already done. Um, we have made significant progress and we have much more to do. Um, but contraception, assisted reproductive technology, anything and everything that has to do with autonomy and health decisions and personal decisions that didn't exist 200 years ago is now on the line. And that's basically what the majority opinion says. And frankly, I think you can you can see the significance of this decision just by virtue of the fact that all three of the dissenting judges wrote their dissent together. Now, I'm an, I'm a lawyer, Jeff's a lawyer. I don't know about you, Jeff, but I have never seen a dissent written collectively like that. Usually the way dissents are written, the way any judicial opinion um, is written is that you have one justice write it and the others join in. This one was written all three of them together. We dissent, not I dissent and other people join. We dissent. And that is significant. And we have absolutely no reason whatsoever, as the dissent rightly points out, to believe the justices in the majority when they say, oh, don't worry about the, that Thomas, uh, the Justice Thomas concurrence. Don't worry about those other rights. We're not going to touch them. Scouts honor. That's exactly what they say in the dissent. Scouts honor. We're not going to do it. Don't worry. Yes, they are. 
Yes, they mm -hmm. are. And we should be worried. Now, I happen to uh, to agree that this is a tipping point. I just don't know that. I, I think the difference between the way Jeff looks at it and the way I look at it is that it's going to tip one way or the other. And le more likely the other way, at continuing on this road. Yes. I, I, I do agree with Jeff that that we have a very, very serious election coming up in November. And the importance of state legislative elections has never, ever in the history of this country been higher because the court is no longer reliable, at least mm. not in this moment. And I sure hope that we are going to see term limits or some other reform come through for the Supreme Court. But we don't have that right now. And we are certainly not going to have that in the next five months. And I don't think we're going to have it even in the, in the next five or 10 years. We might, and I would love to be wrong about that. But right now, given the current state of affairs, your state representative and your state senator are two of the most important people for preserving, protecting, and working to advance basic civil rights and human decency. I'll extend your thought, Rebecca, by saying, in my past as a movie maker, I know we operate with certain tropes in plot design and so forth when we're telling a story, and this is a big story. And I think that we've, you know, we talk about a tipping point, I'll dramatize it this way. In every movie, there's always some second actor, some background player who runs in in the moment of crisis and then screams out loud, we're all gonna die. Um, that's their job. Uh, and they <laughs> sort of heighten the drama. And, and I have to say, this kind of feels like that moment, as you point out with, you know, with uh, Justice Thomas saying, hey, let's do this, let's do that. When did we end up with a, not just a Supreme Court, but a supremely active court thinking that it can now do the job of the legislature? That's not its role. It's not that branch. Um, and now what they're saying is, yeah, hey, we'll do whatever we want. Um, excuse me. So, Pete, I want to take off because your your call that, you know, we're all going to die. I know we're talking about the law and the systems and the place, but people are going to die. And so exactly. I know exactly. we have lawyers here who are talking about the broader system. And as a public health expert, the reality is the lives that are going to be impacted, they're going to mm -hmm. be invisible. You're not going to see the women and children and all birthing people who are going to die because Absolutely. of the decision. And it might not be in the thousands, but it will be significant. It will be harmful. It will be painful for families and it will be inequitable. It will and be in the thousands. It yes. will be in the thousands and it will yeah. be inequitably distributed and it will be communities that suffer and wealthy people who can leave, who can take a plane, mm -hmm. who can travel, who can leave the country if they have to, if it gets really bad. And it's just, I think we need to, you know, I'm going to force us to go back to just describing some of these people. And you know mm -hmm. that's why I asked Dr. Butler and Brittany to join us today, because I think too often we, you know, a health and human rights framework thinks about the systems, but if we don't see the people, then we fail to create the urgency that we need, including mm -hmm. I know Becca sees them because I know Becca has been doing a lot of this work. I know Jeff sees them and it's that, that connection. So Brittany, I don't know if you wanna say a few words about how we think you know, maternal outcomes, how they have been in the past inequitably distributed and why this decision, you know, may kind of widen, widen those inequities that already exist. Yeah. Um, 
I definitely, just like hearing you all speaking, first off, I definitely feel terrified and feel like someone just ran in and told me that we're all going to die. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's to, to Natalia's point, it is very real. And I think like, so when we're looking at Black maternal outcomes now and just an equitable outcomes now for Indigenous people in this country as well, we're looking at sort of like this geographical segregated um, like a uh, concentration of these outcomes. And I think we're gonna see those same things as it, as it relates to this, especially with the idea that now states are going to be responsible for making the decisions around what folks are actually able to do. And so because black folks are concentrated in certain areas, especially the areas that are going to be most impacted by these policies, I think maternal mortality and the health that happens, complications, we're gonna see an increase in that folks are poor and they can't travel right so then we're going to be talking about illegal abortions and what that might mean in terms of mortality risk or future fertility or future pregnancy risk and what that might mean in terms of uh how that might play out in terms of uh jail time right so we're seeing in a lot of the policies that are being written there's this this unequal distribution of of what that sort of means like as a felony and we know that has a lot to do with voting rights so i think it, there is going to be this cascading effect that definitely happens especially in sort of like the southern region of this country particularly for people that were already suffering from increased maternal mortality and other infant mortality um, and health complications and then i think on top of that to natalie's point around you know people being able to leave or be people being able to have these resources, that also means that resources are gonna be extracted from those communities even more than they were already extracted if people are leaving. Um, and then you're gonna have people that are stuck there. So I think cascading effect of what that looks like for health and their everyday life is definitely going to be impacted in terms of what they're able to do and then if they're able to have a safe pregnancy. Um, and then just in terms of thinking about who's already at risk of complications and needing to have these medically induced abortions that could just genuinely save their life during a time of pregnancy for many people those are not going to be off the table and we're going to see this increase in maternal mortality i think across groups but definitely inequitably for people who cannot afford these safer options Brittany, could you please just frame it for us because keep in mind the listeners of this show are in massachusetts and the 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 folks in Massachusetts are not going to be, you know, in the in the situation that's describing. If you could geographically tell us where uh, folks are most vulnerable uh, for what you talked about, because um, you know, as as uh, Becca had pointed out, uh, you know, both the House and the Senate have taken some swift actions uh, to prevent. The, uh, the the bad aspects of this decision from impacting folks who live here in Massachusetts, but help folks who listen to this show who happen to live here in Massachusetts, help them better understand who actually is going to be uh, affected um, by this and you know where they live uh, and how it would uh, impact them so that I think people can have a better understanding. Because for example, um, I had a, a uh, person talked to me over the weekend said, well, you know, the, the Supreme Court decision is not so bad. It just sent the issue back to the states. And, you know, I was talking to the person. I said, you know, I think you deeply misunderstand what's at stake here in this decision. So if you could help us um, in that regard, tell us who's who's affected, where and uh, the, the real 
ramifications of this decision. Jeff, can I jump in to just say the, the geography, and then I'm going to let Brittany talk about the actual impact. So we know that 13 states had trigger bans, which means immediately with Roe v. Wade, you know, we'll prohibit abortion within 30 days. We expect, and Becca, you might know this better, about half of the states in this country to make abortion illegal. And it's not just an abortion. It basically puts medical professionals including, you know, Brittany talked about medical procedures. So you're having an ectopic pregnancy or your fetus is unlikely to survive because of trisomy or some other complication. And you know that that child will be born and die within hours. You have to carry that pregnancy to birth a child that will not survive. Like the pain, you know, it's impacting people who don't want to have a child, but also people who want to have a child, but have received like the horrible news that they're, pregnancy is not one that will survive. It is really expansive. And, and Brittany, I'll, I'll let you speak. I mean, you can speak to the geography or the laws, but I feel like your expertise is really telling us a bit more about, you know, what are some of the maternal mortality complications? What does it mean? You know, what, do we have certain populations that have more unwanted pregnancies because of inequities in contraception? I don't know. Anything else you want to add? So I guess just for clarification to your question, are you talking about geographically within Massachusetts exclusively? Uh, no, because I don't think anyone in Massachusetts, at least that's my impression, that no one in Massachusetts is going to be affected by this decision. I'm just trying to give uh, our listeners an understanding of wh where people will be affected by this. You know, and I know Natalia had suggested it'd be up to 25 states, but I think people really need to know where they are and uh, you know, what what types of folks are going to be impacted? Well, I mean, I think everyone will be impacted because I think this is really showing that like laws can change pretty immediately. Like just because something is in place currently doesn't mean that it will necessarily be in place forever, given that we have this very politicization of, of health and, and what that looks like. So I think everyone will definitely be impacted. I think to Natalia's point, some folks are definitely impacted more quickly. And I think that is definitely seen in some more of the Southern sort of conservative GOP led states in this country. We're going to see sort of this immediate compounding effect of this decision almost exclusively, particularly because they're also having a lot of other inequitable policies that they're putting forth. Um, that and that would be uh, like Oklahoma, yeah, like, like the, yeah, those uh, states, Louisiana, Texas. Florida, Georgia, like those, yeah, those states. Um, and so I think in terms of the inequitable distribution of what that looks like, we're definitely going to see a more immediate effect in those in those states that are acting more quickly or already had this legislation um, in place. So I'll, I'll jump in here because mm -hmm. I just want to I want to comment, actually, not only to to wholeheartedly agree with and up, uplift Brittany's assessment of this situation, but actually, you know, there are plenty of people in Massachusetts who don't have access to abortion care right now. And that's not because of our legal system. That's because of money or cars or other sorts of systemic um, access issues. And so and in fact, one of those access issues is the fact that birthing centers all across the state are closing. So um, and, and in fact, last term, my very first term in office, um, working together with with colleagues in the House and advocates in the community. I passed legislation to create a maternal um, inequity, uh, uh, racial disparities and inequities in maternal health commission. That commission has just completed its work. But the truth of the matter is that black women in Massachusetts 
die at a rate of more than double that of white women in uh, during and immediately after pregnancy. So Massachusetts is not in any way immune to the systemic well, it, issues that we a, are seeing a, in plenty right, of other parts it, of the country. But it, but I was only referring to the decision. Nobody in Massachusetts is impacted by that decision. Um, what you're talking about are the you know the overall systemic. Uh, issues that uh, have existed long before that decision. So I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I just didn't want people to have the misimpression uh, that uh, I was ignoring those. It's I'm just talking about the decision. Sure. And the, the decision is, is I, all, I guess we, we should also be very clear that had we not passed legislation last term, Massachusetts would have been in this near half of the state of the country where abortion would have almost immediately become illegal, right? Mm -hmm. Because all of our anti-choice laws were still on the books. The, you know, the, the bare minimum that our predecessors in the legislature were forced to do because of Roe, because of the Roe decision in 1973, right? They, had, they changed state laws in the immediate aftermath of Roe v. Wade right here in Massachusetts. And we, up until last term, still for 30 years, more than 30, well, nearly 50 years, still had on the books those same archaic laws that were put on the books in 19, late 73 and early 1974, right? So we, only by virtue of the fact that we passed that bill last term and overrode the governor's veto twice to get that done, only by virtue of that is Massachusetts not immediately directly impacted by this decision. That having been said, I don't think any of us know what the long-term ramifications of this decision are going to be and how they might impact Massachusetts, including, but certainly not limited to, a potential national abortion ban, which Mike Pence has already proposed. I mean, the ink on the decision wasn't even dry yet and he was already out with that proposal, which again, we knew would be coming. If that happens, Massachusetts state laws will be on the chopping block. I want to point out also, too, that, you know, I'm, I'm hearing, you know, among the conservative discussion, a, a certain amount of caprice. In other words, we are deferring the decision back to the states, meaning that they are de facto endorsing this loose confederation of nation states that will act on their own. Meanwhile, having gotten that win in their column, they're now saying we're going to continue by going back to the federalist view and making it consistent for every single state. Well, you know, they're not even bothering to pick their fights anymore. All they're doing is saying, and this is some advice I got a long, long time ago, you have to decide whether or not you want to be right or if you want to win. They're not the same thing. But what it implies is if you really want to win, you're going to have to get dirty. You're going to have to play hard and you're not going to have to worry about principle. And that's really, really unfortunate. But that's what I'm seeing going on in the background here. I also uh, want to amplify some things that both Brittany uh, and Becca brought up. And that is what we see is that we have bellwether states, uh, California, Massachusetts, who understand what's going on. They're taking forward looking positions of protection uh, and you know, someone like Mike Pence could put us at risk. And then what we see, it creates an archipelago of very localized positions, Boston, Chicago, LA. And around that, there is this sea of red. 
and sea of conservatism. But if you really look at the numbers, the, the majority is located in, in the major uh, cities. And what you have, quite frankly, fairly thin support among the populace, if there, if there really is that support in, in the uh, more conservative regions. So this really amounts to tyranny of the minority. That's really what's in play here. And it's, it's most unfortunate that it has come down to that and continues. I want to even put up to a, you know, to some of Brittany's comments earlier. I want to just put another real life example uh, that has actually come up to me from a few, several people actually in the days following the decision um, of people who, as Natalia pointed out, wanted to wanted to be pregnant and wanted very much to have a child and had a miscarriage and their bodies were, in fact, uh, one of Jeff's colleagues. Representative Lipper Garabedian spoke quite bravely and eloquently about this on the floor in a in the House debate um, about what to do in the aftermath of the Dobbs decision. That she too had had this experience that um, sometimes women's bodies are not able to complete the miscarriage process on their own, and um, they go through procedures that are effectively abortion techniques. Um, and those, all of those are also on the line. And, and let's be clear that some of those women whose bodies are unable to expel a miscarried pregnancy are going to die without access to abortion care. It is, it is literally that simple. They are going to die. People are going to die from this decision and par- and families are going to be torn apart because certainly the Supreme Court is not going to stop here. And we have to continue to do everything in our power here in Massachusetts to make sure that the, that the people who live here and the people who come here have care and protection, not just in this space, but in a host of others. And then of course it begs the question of whether people can even get here in the first place. So and when people even- ask me, what can they do in this moment? You know, one of the things that I say is, is donate to abortion access funds that are um, helping people get to places where they can get the care and attention that they need and deserve. And I think we do need to say these stories, tell the stories, the real stories, so people can see what's happening. My colleague works in a homeless shelter. She's a nurse practitioner there. And she was talking about them getting together, you know, a network of uh, clinicians in homeless shelters to talk about what are they going to do in settings where, you know, medical abortion. So you can be receive a pill, take it at home, but you bleed for days and, you know, you have to do it in privacy. But if you're homeless and you're in a shelter and you need to leave in the afternoon in the middle of an abortion happening. So they're trying to put, you know, they're scrambling right now, doctors and physicians and nurses to figure out, you know, how do we care for homeless women who may live in a place where they do not have a safe environment to go through this in their privacy, you know, to not then be prosecuted in a place where if there is a complication. So it's just so important to to name individuals. And I know we've been talking about women. Another very important group is trans men, people who have chosen not to identify, who do not want, in most cases, to be getting pregnant. You know, a trans man who accidentally becomes pregnant and wants to end that pregnancy, like that, the consequences of not being able to do that for someone who has made a decision about how their life is, you know, it's just completely unfair and unacceptable. And so I do want to make sure that we're inclusive in our language of all birthing people. Um, but I do, you know, want to want to sort of say I'm 
I, if you're hearing the urgency and sort of the frustration and the sadness among, you know, the, the panelists, the women panelists, I mean, I know the men do too, but I feel like we, we have something that we are very, it's, it's so visceral. So today my five-year-old's, it's my five-year-old's birthday. And I remember, you know, they're twins. So those are complicated pregnancies. You know, I remember feeling like I needed to trust my provider to do what was best for me. Imagine living in a state where you cannot trust your provider anymore because you're scared that if you accidentally, you know, if you have a miscarriage, it could be characterized one way. Like the that kind of need that pregnant people have to trust the people around them, you are taking that fundamental you know, need away from them. So yes, it's a human right, but it's fundamentally, I mean, we are scared and frustrated and angry that our daughters will not be able to have the same protections that we did. And I am angry and I don't know how else to talk about it. And I am angry and I live in Massachusetts, you know, it's, mm-hmm. and I don't have to fear for tomorrow. So I don't, I don't know. Sorry to take to the, the other, other, the other thing today. about the fear of I'm dealing with the fear is there are laws on the books in certain states that I've always referred to as Stasi rules, Stasi after the old East German police, where the citizens of that state would be encouraged. If someone's gone out of state and you know that they've come back into the state and they got an abortion out of state, however they arranged it, the state will reward you for turning them in. And there is prosecution of those people who have left the state, gone outside the state, and done something that their home state considers to be a crime, punishable by imprisonment, fines, potentially death. Some of them have capital punishment still on the books. This is another aspect of the fear. It's, it's, but I cannot, and truthfully, I cannot even come to the first point of understanding the fear that is prevalent and has to has, has been and will continue to escalate among women who who cannot afford to even go out of state to do this. Women who are going to have to turn to drug dealers to get those pills. Women who are going to have to go into again what were called for years back alley abortions, where there's no sanitation level level of hygiene. The danger of just hideous hideous things being used to cause these abortions and the death that results far too often from this sort of thing. I'm so sorry. I want to, I want to pick up on, on several of these themes and actually come back to one that we were talking about before about the impact for people in Massachusetts, because the more I listen to this conversation unfold, the more I realize there actually are some very, the more I'm able to articulate some very real consequences for people in Massachusetts. So first of all, while we are not yet there, if contraception, which easily could be the next thing on the chopping block, um, falls, you know, in the about 20 years after Roe, there was a or after Roe was enact was passed, uh, was decided, excuse me, the crime rates fell significantly. Mm. And then, you know, the the guys from Freakonomics, I think, are the ones that figured, oh, oh, because a whole bunch of people didn't have to give, weren't forced into birth, right? And a whole bunch of, of babies weren't brought into the world without any, without you know, sufficient support structures. I remember that uh, well. And if the, right, I, I am hard pressed to think of a single person who, who could have become pregnant in their reproductive years or could now become pregnant um, in my life who hasn't used contraception in some form. And contraception, by the way, also provides healthcare completely unrelated to whether or not a person is about to become pregnant or even trying to become pregnant or even sexually active. 
Um, and and then then even beyond that, you know, what what are the impacts for Massachusetts people right now? Massachusetts people sometimes travel. Sometimes Massachusetts people who are pregnant travel. And if they go, any of us, right? If we we are we have a Massachusetts resident who is pregnant and and travels to Texas or Mississippi or Oklahoma or any of these other states, nearly half the country, right? Even if they weren't planning to be there, right? Maybe something happened and they got stuck somewhere and you know along the lines and something happens with that pregnancy and they need immediate care, they won't be able to get it. They won't be able to get it. Period. And they could, depending on what happens, die from that. And on top of it, I I just I want to just from a, a sort of higher sort of higher you know fifty thousand foot view take a step back from from the minutiae and just kind of think about this concept of of our country and our nation and our democracy, because I talk, I mean, we talk with people all the time, right? We're literally in the business of public service. This is what we do. We talk to people. And my sense of the people in Massachusetts is that we don't just care about our own neighborhood or our own town, or even our own state rep or state Senate district or our own Commonwealth. People in Massachusetts actually care about the whole nation and they care deeply and vigorously and so this decision impacts people in Massachusetts, not just because of this sort of sense of individualism, but also because of the way that this sort of idealistic or, or perhaps formerly idealistic view of individualism has been warped over time. And, and that has consequences. That has consequences for us as a country and consequences for us as a commonwealth. I also want to expand that point, Becca, that when you look at things like the Texas bounty law uh, and the fact that other states seek to emulate that, what we're seeing and now, yes, people in Massachusetts, as a, again, as a bellwether state, care about the general well-being of the entire country. And we try to progress the entire country in a positive direction. It seems odd to say that states like Texas might make the same claim to their ends through things like the bounty law. But what is even worse is that they're becoming activists in trying to develop legislation that reaches beyond their borders, that forces states like Massachusetts to have to reckon with the impact of the legislation that exists outside of our uh, state borders. Um, and, and they're becoming more and more strident in trying to work the legal machinations to do that. Uh, it's as though what we are doing is seeing a new form of a civil war being conducted in the various legislatures. And we are becoming in that process, again, at the 50,000 foot level, a less united states. Uh, with respect to healthcare, you know, we have healthcare islands. Massachusetts is one of three states where, quite frankly, I'm really happy I'm here. Um, because of the fact that we tend to do things right. And I shudder to think about, well, you know, upon some retirement at some point, what would I do? Well, you know, I'm not enticed to move elsewhere because I have real questions about what options I have if I decided to move to sunnier or warmer climes. What's the impact of that? Thinking I want to stay home where it's good. It, you know, and, and to your point, Pete, you know, taking this even a step further into something I know Jeff is, is really deeply passionate about, used to be the chair of the higher ed committee, you know, Massachusetts young people go to other states to go to school. And in fact, people from other states come to Massachusetts to go to school. 
So, you know, one of the one of the bills that was filed this term and is still active um, is about providing medication abortion on public college campuses and making that access much more real. You know, that that is part and parcel of what we as a commonwealth can and in my opinion should be doing in this moment, right? Where we know that some of those some of those young people that are coming to school here in the commonwealth, I mean, let's be let's be real, right? Massachusetts is a great place to go to school. What, I think there's some statistics, like one of every 12 people in our Commonwealth is a college student, right? We got a lot of college students here. Um, and that's not even counting the grad students and postdocs and all the rest of them. If we, you know, some of those people, if they go home, won't be able to access anything in terms of uh, reproductive health, the full panoply of reproductive health care. And, um, you know, that spectrum of care is really critical. You know, along those lines, uh, Becca, there was there's a story in uh, the Globe today um, about the economic impact on Massachusetts that uh, businesses that, that are looking to set up shop and and make a state their home uh, are going to look to those states like Massachusetts that um, are, you know, have better laws and better protections for people. So there's actually uh, a suggestion that this could have an economic boost to Massachusetts. And, you know, like uh, Pete, uh, uh, I am happy here. I am going to stay here. And uh, it makes my desire to visit some of these states is severely lessened. I'm like, you know, I... I would, you know, sometimes I'm afraid to go to a particular foreign country, afraid that I'm going to get trapped there or, um, you know, uh, arrested for some foolish thing. I can remember visiting Tijuana and somebody warning me, don't ever spit on the sidewalk because they'll arrest you and lock you up. And, uh, you know, I, I, I laughed when I faced that 20 years ago, but now I'm talking about certain states in the United States that I'd be afraid to go to because, uh, you know, I'd be a, a, a afraid of some particular thing I may say or do that uh, may be determined to be objectionable and, you know, get uh, get you arrested. So, you know, your points are extremely valid. You know, what if a kid comes to college here in Massachusetts and uh, has a procedure, a medical procedure done here in Massachusetts and then goes home? Does, Maybe they can never go home. Well, or does she face prosecution if she exactly. goes home for an action that took place in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts? Do medical providers who did those procedures in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts and they attempt to get licensed in another uh, uh, state, do they face uh, particular consequences? So there are, you know, there are some certainly some other uh other things at play here. And uh, you know, I'm deeply concerned about the impacts. Brittany, the- I, I, I want to ask, uh, kind of changing it a little, just a little bit, with your work and the time that you've dedicated to this area, what, if any, do you see as a way of turning this around? Or a way of what, where should the, the support for, for uh, these people, for these women, these trans men, anyone who has need of abortion, where does the port the support for them come from? How do we make a groundswell? Is there a grassroots group that would possibly uh, have a, a large effect nationally on this sort of thing, or even locally? Yeah, okay, that's a great question. 
Can I think on that one and respond to something really quickly, though, that I've been like Certainly. trying to interject really quickly? I, I think the point that you made about fear and I think what folks have been talking around, especially around policing, is something that I'm very fearful of, especially as I do this work in racialized spaces, because even in my own work, we were already seeing that women were being reported by healthcare facilities for things that were right, mostly about like to Becca's point about these support structures are being able to raise these children, they are being reported to child protective services, their children are being taken away. And even in this particular sort of uh, report from the justices, we saw that there was this line around like supply of children and adoption. And I think that's also a very real fear of people that that this is like another thing where people will just try to, they will be forced to birth children that could potentially be taken away from them because they were not given a choice as to whether they wanted to bring this child into the world, but was not given necessarily. So form of double indemnity. Right. And I think another 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 part of that, too, is, is this idea that racially we see that these injustices exist already in, in this right like a system of policing. So can you imagine this subjective nature of you being able to report if you think somebody has gone out of state or somebody has done something that is in violation of the laws where people really didn't have a lot of rights to begin with? And so I think going or circling back to answer your question about what can we do, I think something that we talk about at FXB is like this idea that like all of these things are human rights and they're tied together. And I don't think we can have a conversation about health inequities or what that looks like without actually talking holistically about what it means to offer a person a full life, full well-being and like their ability to sort of capture all of these these rights that they are they are naturally afforded. Um, and so I think as as a community, we have to figure out all the ways in which this is going to affect people from the healthcare system to financial structures. Becca was talking earlier around like transportation. Like I think we have to figure out a way to create sort of like this coalition around what does it mean from all these different disciplines, aspects to really create this? I think there are a lot of organizations that are working on this in particular, um, like Sister Song. They focus a lot on reproductive justice and what that looks like and what that actually means in terms of wanting to be pregnant, who should or, you know, who should be making the decisions about your bodily autonomy in terms of your reproductive health. So I think there are organizations that are doing that and moving that motion forward nationally. I think there are organizations like Planned Parenthood that obviously invest a lot of resources in terms of thinking about how these issues can be navigated. But I think there has to be this other sector that's brought in, right? That's outside of just this sort of immediate effect of how you think it impacts one particular individual and more so about like, we are all responsible for these decisions that are happening. And we all need to reckon with the fact that like, we have in some way contributed to what we're seeing right now, whether it's if you're not voting, like you need to vote. If you're not, if you're not doing like we all need to reckon with the fact that like there are a lot of things that are happening that I think collectively we need to to figure out a way to sort of navigate. I want to bring in an example that builds on what Brittany just said so articulately and eloquently is is a uh, and poignantly. It just I'm sort of you can't see on the radio, but I'm vigorously shaking my head yes is to everything that Brittany is saying. Um, you know, in the last couple of years we have seen right here in Massachusetts um, criminal cases against women who were so scared and so marginalized um, that they gave birth on their own. You know, one, one instance involved a woman who was an immigrant who was uh, cleaning someone's apartment and gave birth 
by herself in the bathroom, thought that it cleaned up after the birth, after her own birth by herself, um, thought that the baby was stillborn, wrapped it in a bag and put it in the trash. And then she was prosecuted because, um, because the baby wasn't dead. And, um, and so we're, you know, in terms of that criminalization that Brittany is talking about, it's not, it's not actually just about abortions. It's about all the long-term, the, the line of criminalizations of, of pregnancies and, and pregnant people and all the various ways that our system, you know, forces and, and now is going to force drastically more people into the penal system and the criminal legal system. Let's be clear that that's not a justice system as it currently exists, right? We've got a lot of injustice in the way our criminal system works. Um, and I also want to just circle back to something Jeff said a few moments ago about this, this article on the front page of today's globe about the economic boom that might happen in Massachusetts by virtue of businesses coming here. That also could happen in other states, right? That have, um, that are, uh, you know, reproductive justice safe haven states. Let's be clear about the, the political and legal ramifications of that with regard to the United States Senate. Because if droves of businesses and droves of people come from, from quote unquote red states to the quote unquote blue states, and we don't change the structure of the United States Senate, it just gets worse, right? Um, so, you know, we, we've got so many different facets of work to do. I do. Uh, I wanna sort of also uh, take a moment to look at the decision directly. And by the way, you know, it's, it's I'm not gonna call it the feel good beach read of the summer, but the decision itself is very complex but I don't think right out of the gate, it's well-crafted. Uh, the decision doesn't even get to the dissenting position until around page 158, where suddenly the language becomes more learned, more reasoned. But at the center of this decision, at the center of this decision, where they went beyond Justice Roberts' agreement of, of the original logic, they went on to make the further claim of, of killing Roe Wade by saying that, well, the Constitution doesn't actually talk about abortion. Excuse me? Well, the Constitution doesn't talk about the internet. The Constitution doesn't talk about highway safety. The Constitution doesn't talk about a whole lot of things. It's a philosophical document that prescribes human rights in a most general way. And under the amendment involving privacy, we have things called HIPAA laws and HIPAA laws are protected. And that said, the finding steps right past HIPAA laws and says, you know, here's a medical procedure, a very private determination, and we don't care. We're going to do whatever we want about it. Uh, so again, it's a case of not caring about being right, but more caring about just winning at all costs. And it's really unfortunate. Now, consider for a moment when the Constitution was being drafted, you got a bunch of old guys sitting in a room doing their best to write a reasoned agreement. The founding fathers did their best. Where were the founding mothers? They weren't on the radar and they haven't been on the radar and they're still not on the radar. So the bottom line is, if you want to fix it, we need to put more women in Congress. I believe that is a great salvation for this country. I really do. And it's tragic that the very backbone of our country is crafted in a way 
that people with a strict interpretation, an originalist interpretation, can work all the way back to those years where women had zero power and say, this is the nature of the law. It's not right. And if it means a rewrite of the Constitution, I'll go with that blasphemy. We need more amendments. We need an amendment that clarifies the concept of personal rights over. Here's the thing. We're always arguing about states' rights versus federal rights. And the rights that are not ascribed specifically to the federal government automatically flow to the state. I don't agree with that. I think that rights not specifically subscribed by the federal government need flow to first individuals and then to the state. Individuals have to trump states in order to find a way to get us to a more equitable situation. That's that's my two cents. I just want to add one little anecdote, which is a little separate from what we're talking about. But this morning, my five-year-old um, was getting dressed and I asked her, did you want this or this? And she was getting frustrated. I said, it's your choice. And she goes, my body, my choice. I guess she's been hearing that remark. And she's right. My body, my choice at five means picking mm -hmm. what to wear, whether, you know, as a parent, whether you allow someone to hug, you know, if you don't want to hug, you know, you, you create barriers, you teach five, six-year-old kids. It's your body, your choice. Nobody can touch you. If you don't want to be touched, nobody can, you know, this is part of basic parenting. And when she said it, it occurred to me that my body, my choice is so fundamental to everything we teach, you know, kids. And, and then when they become of reproductive age or, you know, and this is, you say, no, it's no longer your choice. It was, it was a bit heartbreaking hearing a five-year-old mm. say that and realizing that actually the entire notion of what is yours to control that's what we're instilling in five, six, seven-year-olds, and then we take it away. We're witnessing the tyranny of the minority. And what's, what's doubly unfortunate and sad about this is if you really consider what's going on and you look at the stakeholders, the people who are trying to do this really don't have a dog in this hunt that they can say is legitimate. They're not direct stakeholders. They're simply decreeing some set of misbegotten beliefs that they want to inflict on other people. That's where they are. When uh, I was speaking to Brittany earlier, I've just, what I'm looking for is just who do we go to to start a groundswell of opposition to this? Now, I came up in the 60s, like Pete, and one of the greatest movements at that time, of course, was civil rights. And a lot of support, a lot of the movement was forwarded and advanced by the church. You had Dr. Martin Luther King, Reverend Jesse Jackson. You had the churches out there in front because of, and almost exclusively black churches, but there were a lot of white churches, liberal white churches that became involved in it also. We can't really look to the churches at this time. Exactly. Um, I'm an evangelical Christian. This whole issue is just, it tears at me. I believe life starts at conception. But at the same time, I believe every woman has a right to determine, every woman, every transgender man, anyone involved in pregnancy has a right to determine what happens to their body. The only thing I can do is go into the polls and vote along those lines. And I, I, cannot, I can see very few churches, white or black at this time, that are going to, and, and the idea that we have black churches, white churches, 
that that tears at me also. I'm torn between every question on that level. Most segregated hour of the week. <laughs> yes. Yes, I'm afraid so. so. So Natalie, do you see any organization? I mean, the Planned Parenthood and what Brittany referred to, the other groups that Brittany referred to, how can they draw a real populist response to this invasion, this atrocity? That well, this I can, I can really certainly answer at. that one. It's a case of everything is emotional. And certainly this issue is very emotional and mm-hmm. it needs an emotional appeal, an emotional response. We need to take a cue from the red states playbook. Stop this deal. Mm-hmm. Lock her up. America responds to a visceral three word scream. Mm-hmm. Vote pro-choice. Vote pro-choice. Vote pro-choice. The chant gets it done. Another more perfect union hour has flown by. And we do have to say goodbye until next week. Now, if you would like to weigh in on our discussions, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at info at franklin.tv. That's I-N-F-O at franklin.tv. If you enjoyed our discussion, please let us know. Or more importantly, if you disagree That is all the more reason to let us know. Now, you can also share or listen to this program or any of our past episodes anytime. Our podcasts are available online at our website, wfpr.fm. And for our guests, and for our guests, Dr. Brittany Butler and Senator Becca Rausch, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and our representative, Jeff Roy, along with Peter Jay, I'm Nick Remesong. Thanks for listening and joining our shared journey toward a more perfect union. This is Franklin Public Radio.